We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And we are back for an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fortel. And you know what? It truly is Christmas season. And I have to tell you, I spend so much time now resisting Christmas music because that season of It's Not Time Yet is now longer than the actual time you're supposed to listen to Christmas music. So I feel like frazzled and stressed by the time I actually hear Nat King Cole. Like, okay, I accept you into my life again. But now it's time, according to Mariah. Right. I do like the not yet hashtag or whatever she does before it's time. Like she yeah. actually is telling people to shut up too, which <laughs> we need condescension from divas. Not everybody acts like Patty Lapone anymore. Although maybe she should have let people start early because Brenda Lee took that top spot this week. I will be talking further about Christmas songs in my keep it this week and <laughs> Brenda Lee. But um, yeah, I guess this was inevitable if we're looking at the upward swing of these songs that come back every year. It's it's just so interesting that that's the one that people really return to more than any other. Like, wow, like Frank, Dean, and Sammy all found dead in a ditch. You going to talk about Brenda Lee's black fishing? No, what is that? Black fishing. You know, like pretending to be black. Oh. Ish. Like Pink's first album. Brenda, Brenda Lee, she was given a sister. Okay. Brenda Lee singing There You Go or whatever, or You Make Me Sick. <laughs> <laughs> singing it to Santa Claus. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I need our listeners at home to know that every weekend is an adventure with this show. Sure. Since I moved. Uh, sometimes I'm in the studio. Sometimes I'm at home. Today I'm back in the studio just like Nicki Minaj. Right. Um, <laughs> whose album will never come out this week, probably. <laughs> Still anticipating it, yes. <laughs> Baby, you are Pink Friday, too. <laughs> is what she's going to say. I love how she's like Elmer Gantry, like an old-timey televangelist. Like, here it comes, <laughs> the greatest album, you know. <laughs> but this week I'm in the studio, um, and, you know, ran into my good friend Penn Badgley just now in the hallway. Ira was just in the hallway. He comes back to record, and I would describe you as stressed. Like, <laughs> that pen is just around the corner. It's funny, because I, like, I opened the door, and then I just met with him. That reminds me of one time I left a screening of the movie Destroyer. Do you remember the movie Destroyer? Director Karin Kusama. Oh, I do. And I was like, 
Well, okay, that's the end of that. That's Anne Hathaway, right? Nope, nope, nope. I'll tell you who it is. I leave the theater, and who's standing out there waiting to talk about it with the audience? Nicole Kidman. Some people should not be face-to-face with me. Excuse me. Especially if you're seven foot four and you have like long, <sighs> beautiful Amy Irving-like tresses, as Nicole Kidman did that day. Okay. What's the Anne Hathaway movie where she's the giant and the monster? That movie is called Colossal. Okay, Colossal. Destroyer, yes, that's Nicole Kidman. That is like back when I was in L.A. and I saw a premiere of um, Not Beautiful Boy. That's the Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet. Boy Erased? Refused to see. Um, Boy Erased, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I I walk out of that theater and there also was just Nicole Kidman hanging out. No, unacceptable. No, right. (laughs) I feel like she loves to do that. I guess being at the movie theater is her thing. Uh, No. You know, she sort of (laughs) rebranded successfully. You know what? Maybe that's how the AMC thing came about. Right. They're like, oh, what a wonderful movie. Oh, my God, Nicole, you're here. They were actually probably just shooting an AMC ad, and Nicole was just there hanging out. She's like, can I do it? (laughs) She's like, I wrote a little monologue about how I enjoy going to the movies. You guys ready for this? (laughs) Were were we supposed to get a second one of those, by the way? I feel very duped about that. Well, I mean, is Nikki producing it? (laughs) It's it's, it's this generation's um, Chinese democracy or whatever that Guns N' Roses album was. (laughs) You'll get it in 2046. (laughs) A two and a half star review in Rolling Stone. Yeah. I do remember when that album came out. I never really gave a fuck about Guns N' Roses, although. Welcome to the jungle. You know, I did the rock hands for <laughs> people who who can't see. <laughs> Which is so legitimate. You look like you're at CBGB when you do that. I have never done that in my life. No, that is yeah. the first time you've ever seen me do this. Next, I'm going to start doing this to say that things are cool. Can I tell you something, though? In my own personal life, I feel like, you know, people just adopt, like, the peace sign for pictures and stuff now. Like, that's what our generation yeah. does with their hands. I have to say, a couple of times, I will do the rock gesture as, like, a play on that because I don't want to be cliched. But at the same time, girl, can you picture me at a Pink Floyd concert, motherfucker? What am I doing? I could see you doing that in a Polaroid photo with Janine Garofalo at some loft party in the East Village. Fuck yeah. Um, what? We're wearing the exact same Doc Martens. <laughs> Duh. Yes. <laughs> I remember listening to Chinese Democracy when it came out because it obviously was like the thing. Everyone was talking about it. This album had taken centuries to come out. Nicolas Cage found it along with the <laughs> uh, original Constitution. And... I was like, this is kind of boring. No, I know. It's just also just the name alone. Like you knew that a thing holding this album back was sucking. Chinese democracy. There it is. Do they have one? I think that's why they named it that. They thought it was really kitschy and cute. Speaking Mm. of Nicolas Cage, by the way, did you see that he finally watched Breaking Bad and he had never watched any TV before and now he's interested in doing TV because he thought Breaking Bad was great? (laughs) Nicholas, baby, I would love to know what you were doing with your time besides acquiring haunted New Orleans mansions. What are you doing? Or like Elvis leisure suits or whatever he does. What kind of TV show would Nicolas Cage even do? That said, I mean, like, he feels kind of ripe for an Emmy win or something. We're in this space where we're, we anticipate the movies he does every year now. And there's like this weird kind of... um. I don't want to say campy, but like, wink, wink, we love him, slash, he is a little crazy for real thing going on. And in that space exists prestige. It's rare that some of them are good, like Mandy, though. Usually they're just trash. He did that movie Pig? That was pretty good. Yeah. 
I would say that it's very funny that he has discovered it now because I feel like there's so few actors left who have never made the TV right. jump. You know, I feel like who's who's left to do? It'd be like Daniel Day Lewis, yeah. But of course, where is he? Has George Clooney gone back to television since ER? I don't think so. You're right. You're right. He already already has ER and the original ER in the 80s before that and Roseanne. So it sort of feels like he conquered uh, that already. Julianne? Julianne is the kind of person, if you told me, actually, she's been on an Apple TV show for 11 seasons and you've never <laughs> seen it. Because she's very like, I have a spare afternoon. I've got to do something. Sure, I'll film that TV show. Mm-hmm. Daniel Day. Daniel Day Lewis is who I would want. And actually, I was thinking about him today because Mubi. Um, tweeted out that now streaming on the platform is top five Scorsese film, Age of Innocence, mm. Daniel Day-Lewis, yes. Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder. Can we team the three of them up again? That would be thrilling because I would love Winona to be good again. Uh, and I know Michelle hasn't lost it. So that would be thrilling. Stranger Things was really a... Um, I feel like it's worse for her than her prison time. Uh <laughs> She's acting out. Remember the first season of Stranger Things? We're all making fun of her crazy acting choices and then all these fucking Christmas lights everywhere and the upside down. And now the monster on the Stranger Things is Zionism. But um, (laughs) it it is, she is truly just lost the plot on that show. And and it's made me forget that I truly genuinely love Winona Ryder. Like, I have to go back and watch Heathers to be like, remember this bitch? She's amazing in Girl Interrupted. I think that movie would not work without her performance anchoring it. Also, I want to say about Age of Innocence, the unbelievably strange choice to make Joanne Woodward narrate it. But anyway. (laughs) Still with us, our oldest living Best Actress winner. Yeah, but I would love to see her, you know, come and do something different. That's a good Christmas wish for us, which leads us into our episode. We are doing our holiday gift guide this week. We're bringing it back because last year we forgot about it. Right. Also, people don't know how to shop unless we start saying products. So we're here to help. Also, send us products. Yes. If your your item isn't on the gift guide this year, it's because you didn't send it to us. Right. I live right in L.A. You think I have like a crazy P.O. box I have to drive to? No, you can just send it to my house. Although I do want to say about Prestige TV and gifts, I got this email from someone who is doing promo for the new season of True Detective. Oh, okay. Jodie Foster. I'm looking forward to it. After uh, Nyad, I am very much looking forward to the Jodie Foster renaissance. I think she is ready. Except the email was one of those typical PR emails where it's, we know you're such a huge fan of True Detective and your audience is, bitch, what the fuck have we ever talked about that show? (laughs) Picture me talking about that. That would seem wrong. True Detective? It would seem like SponCon, wouldn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I can list 10 other Rachel McAdams credits before I come back to that one. (laughs) So we've got our holiday gift guide and then we've also been to the movies. So yeah, we will discuss the movies that we've seen that we're into right now. It's just a very leisurely episode right. this week, We'll to be, be keeping it, yes. Classic keep it. Also, Slater is our guest this week. Whom I've seen perform in Palm Springs. She's one of these people that pops up everywhere, and I love her new album. Love it. Starfucker is a great album. It's giving the deluxe album especially, when finally the title track is on the album. Starfucker is truly one of the best pop songs released this year. Very so. exciting, very exciting. Excited to talk to her. We will be right back. 
The holidays are coming up fast, but there's still time to snag the perfect gifts for everyone you love and even the people you just tolerate. The Crooked Store is stocked with super giftable winter essentials, including best-selling tees that are now available as cozy sweatshirts. Head over to crooked.com store to shop and make sure to order by December 13th to get your merch in time for the holidays. Let me tell you a little bit about Holiday Gift Guides, Lewis. Okay. Um, the first Holiday Gift Guide on record, Oh, it was The Witches to Macbeth. Oh, what is that? I am yeah. mute or something? Yeah, you know, they said, you will be king. Merry Christmas. Yeah. It's a holiday story. People don't respect it at all. <laughs> Macbeth is a Christmas play. Oh, God. It's like Die Hard? Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we decided to do a holiday gift guide this year, mostly because it's just an excuse for us to talk about things that we like. Yeah. So It's also, by the way, hard to give pop cultural recommendations because it really comes down to books now. I have a Criterion mm -hmm. um, recommendation this year too, which is another thing that I hope people do collect. I think it's important to have the physical media of this stuff. But really, it's like harder than ever to share pop culture in a way, especially as a consumer, because everything is just so chronically available online. I just want to say that that's a little bit truly depressing to me. It's just like it takes something out of the fun of possessing media. Yeah, no, I really actually have been enjoying lately. Criterion just had a sale at Barnes & Noble, which they do every year. Um, that was one of the things, even when I worked at Barnes & Noble in high school, it was one of the things that I always loved every year because you would go and you just buy, they'd be half off. Mm -hmm. And you collect some DVDs. And I definitely feel like my apartment now, there's a lot of fucking books in it. Uh, mostly because, like, I brought all of my fucking books to New York, and I need to get rid of some. Some books are just there because friends wrote them, and those friends don't even visit my apartment. So mm -hmm. they can go in the trash. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I need more of a DVD display, and I feel like I want a vintage... The way we used to display DVDs when we were in high school, when you were at your parents' home, you know, or in college, like, there was, like, a whole a beautiful shelf with them just on display. I feel like I want to get back to displaying movies again. I just bought three Criterion films. I bought Eve's Bayou. Mm, yes. But one of the official films of this podcast. Yes. <laughs> For people playing Keep It Bingo. <laughs> Check off the lower left box. Yes. Eve, Eve's Bayou has come up. I got Eve's Bayou. I got The Watermelon Woman. Oh, of course. Which I feel like is now getting recognition on these sort of like best of the past 30 years types list. I was having a convo with Saeed Jones of um, Vibe Check, and we were just talking about books and writing and stuff, and we were actually talking about the, how The Watermelon Woman is it's sort of like this faux documentary style. I actually haven't seen it, so I'm excited to watch it. Uh, it's this faux documentary, obviously, about a Black actress in the 30s, but it was pertinent to something that I was discussing because I was actually discussing how I want to embark possibly on a project like that. Because side note, I've always known that my uncle who died in the 90s, very Uncle Johnny mm -hmm. um, vibes, um, but my Uncle Bill who died in the 90s uh, lived in Chicago with his partner. And it just always assumed that he lived in Chicago his entire life. But when I was researching for my book uh, about my uncle, other uncle who died, who I was named after, 
he died in like 86, four months before I was born. And I was looking at the obituary and it said he survived by his brother, Bill Sherrod of San Francisco. So I'd had no idea that my gay uncle lived in San Francisco in the 80s at all. No one in my family has ever brought it up. No one's ever talked about it. I've never seen any photos. And now I have an intense need to try to hunt down like any gay people still alive from the 80s in San Francisco who might have known him or like any record of where he lived. Well, in San Francisco alone is like a euphemism, you know, a confirmed bachelor. So it's just maybe something that simply wasn't stated about somebody. Oh, he lives in San Francisco. You know, over there. Now I'm going to be like fellow travelers going to San Francisco, walking around the Castro, looking up information. All right. Shelby Wu, here she comes. If you're an old gay listener of this podcast and you know someone who can help me. Oh my God, what a weird request. I know, Ira at Cricket.com. I'm really going to embark on this for the next year. I want to like get to know my gay uncle. Okay. So anyway, Watermelon Woman, and then I got Paris is Burning. Oh, okay. Oh, great. I'll start with my Criterion picks. These are actually, they just came out. Okay, first of all, La Ceremony, which if you have not seen the, I think this is my favorite Isabel Huppert movie. It is crazy. It is from the mid-90s, and it's based on a true story. She playing a bizarro character who, something is not right about this woman from the start, befriends this woman who babysits for a family, and eventually, and the family's kind of well off, and you see these two people sort of worming their way around this family, eventually plotting something. Anyway, it is a very sinister experience. Well, this is based on Jean Genet's The Maids. No, La Ceremony is the one where they like kill the family. It's very much like these two French maids who brutally murdered their employer's wife, yes. which was the story that Jean Genet based the maids on. Got Sorry. it, got it, got so it. So both of these are based on the same, like, true crime thing. Um, also out is The Last Picture Show. I cannot believe this was not uh, a Criterion pick before. But I think, with the exception of Sandy Dennison, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, Cloris Leachman in The Last Picture Show is probably my favorite best supporting actress win of all time. And I have to say, maybe some of that is due to the fact that we associate her with all these kooky comic roles, you know, for the rest of her life, not just the Mary Tyler Moore show, but like think of how she behaved on fucking Dancing with the Stars. She was like a ball of comic energy. But in this movie, well, you get fucking drama. And it's one of the few movies I can think of where every it's like the, the camera turns to every character and picks a moment for them to not just have a monologue, but really express something true about who they are and it's just it's interesting it's a movie that's curious about people and it looks beautiful it's a black and white movie it's peter bogdanovich's first movie he followed that up with what's up doc and paper moon so just an essential collection of three movies just anyway but jeff bridges is so hot in this movie oh jesus christ my and timothy bottoms is fabulous too it's he's one of these people like timothy hutton in ordinary people where i'm like why didn't he get a ton more roles like this that showed just the casual gravity of of a performance that he can bring i think we talked about that maybe when cloris died Mm -hmm. uh, a couple years ago or so but the last picture show is just i was thinking about that when chazelle made his movie but uh there are just so few movies that are about films and about the watching of films that end up being good and this is such a beautiful film well in that movie they end up i think i believe the titular movie is red river from 1948 the montgomery cliff film and it's just like it's like it's just interesting to see a small town that is not seemingly glamorized for the big screen in any way it really just looks legitimate and the characters inhabit it so beautifully oh and also don't look now is out woof donald sutherland and julie christie 
in Venice and you have never seen Venice spookier. This does not look like a tourist location. This looks like some version of hell with dank swamp water running through it. And the climactic moment when they, a, I'll say a mysterious figure of an unusual size appears to them. Movies just used to be scary. People were messed up. Everybody had a little <laughs> bit of rolled doll in their brain. You know, just everything was a little bit off kilter and crazy. I just saw this play, Stereophonic, at um, Playwrights Horizon, which is sold out through December 17th. But I'm, I'm going to be talking about this next week because next week I'm going to be doing a theater segment on the podcast with my friend and theater critic Juan Ramirez. Uh, so we'll get into Stereophonic then. But it's a play set in the late 70s that has music from Will Butler of Arcade Fire. And it's about this Fleetwood Mac-esque band that mm. is recording their second album. And then it stretches from like a month to record it to like a year because they blow up within that time and then it like there's drama between them but there is a exchange in the play about one of the women going to see don't look now and arguing with the other two men uh about like how hot julie christie is in the movie mm. and whether it's sexy and whether like one of the sexiest movies they've ever seen so don't look now has, has been like on my brain for over a week there is a very interesting sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie in that movie too, which not to be Gen Z, it didn't need to be in the movie, I don't think, but it does add something to the movie. Well, so that's the argument yeah. that they have in the play. And there's the argument is that because it's grief sex, yes. it shows, it like changes the course of the rest of the movie. That's probably true. Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, the Criterion Collection exists. Outside of movies though, I'm going to recommend something that feels very redundant because I have talked about this for, I believe, the past seven episodes. But guys, you need to be buying this Barbra Streisand memoir for people in your life. You know what I'll say about this? It's not a book you have to read straight through. A little bit like the oral history of Saturday Night Live, you can open it to any page, and you're in the middle of some amazing tale. You know, it's just like, oh, I'll learn about Barbara making the Broadway album this week, or I'll learn about her making What's Up Doc this week, or the fact that she only likes cream and burgundy and every other color offends her. There's lots to just pick up <laughs> from not reading this book straight through. But by the way, you really should get the audiobook too. Buying it for $29.99 and sending it to someone you love so that they can be on a flight and just lost in her particular sense of technical precision is a joy. I truly will be sad when this book is over. I will be very sad. You know, everyone on the Malaysia flight is listening to it, and they're not done yet. <laughs> okay. Interesting take. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't picked up audiobooks before. This is a, a brand new vista for me. I think it is very entertaining. Something to listen to like while you're driving that isn't just, I don't know, I guess I, I used to just listen to music, but I am starting to prefer this. Well, as long as we're recommending books, I am going to recommend a book that I think that you would love as well. It is Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. It is from Matt Singer. It is a sort of, you know, um, overall look at Ebert's past, at Siskel's past, at how they became film critics, their rivalry with one another, how they came to work together on a failed pilot first, and then with what would eventually become at the movies. It was called sneak previews at first. And then it really just gets into their entire relationship and their thoughts on movies. And it's really, really fucking good. And it's an easy read. And I couldn't put it down. And it, I loved learning more, actually, about Siskel. Mm -hmm. Because I knew a lot about Ebert already. But Siskel, it was fun learning about him and really how he separated knowing people from his opinions on movies and how he was just very honest with people, even right. 
to the point of being an asshole. There's a funny story in there about how he knew Oprah because they were right. in Chicago, obviously. And um, she was nominated for The Color Purple. And he told her, congratulations, you're not going to win. So be happy with the nomination. And the biscuit that they give you at the nominee's brunch, bronze it. <laughs> and she did also oprah herself has said that on her talk show yeah. like, befuddled that gene siskel was that honest with her i'm always interested in the fact that um they were on a talk show once and they were asked to compliment each other and you could see they were like do we have to but they did and Ebert <laughs> said about siskel that siskel was like a classic reporter in many ways like if there was like gossip about town about somebody he would already have the information he already knew everything first and that's not not something you would have intuited about him watching him on their shows together. By the way, nothing is crazier than the fact that Two Thumbs Up did not come along until basically the 90s. When you watch right. their old um, shows, at the end, when they're doing the recap, instead of thumbs up or thumbs down, it'll say yes or no for yeah. like, their reviews. And it's like, man, they, they, <laughs> that sucks in retrospect. <laughs> I can't, it, it, it feels crazy it took them that long to get to a trademark. What's interesting about Cisco, I think you were getting there when you talked about him knowing just what was already happening, a traditional reporter in that way. How Cisco was pulled into writing for the Tribune in the first place was they talked about how back then they used to just sort of like grab whatever long haired guy was already in the bullpen and be like, you write about movies or culture, mm. right? And the person who hired him at that time approached Cisco and said, he wanted to treat movies like a beat the same way that any other beat was in the paper, you know? And, like, that's what appealed to Siskel, treating it like you were reporting on the movies. You weren't just being casually talking about things without any knowledge of what you were talking about. Right, 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 right. No, their interplay I find to be everlasting and intriguing like just like when you're watching them review things there's this extra layer of but what is going on between the two of them it's it, it's like a a play or something as opposed to just a review show which by the way it's fabulous on that level alone so um yeah. i love going it, it, in the same way that i love watching old episodes of what's my line when they would bring in a mystery celebrity and then you're watching the panel react to like oh how does the world feel about like Elizabeth Taylor at that moment as she's brought in. You know, it's like you're studying the, the, the mores of the time and the uh, interplay between the people there as much as you're getting the information about the movie. Speaking of culture and writing, too, I do want to recommend there's a lot of really good substacks that people can read about culture. I love, say, Hunter Harris's Hung Up, for instance. My friend Brendan Holder has a great one called Lucy, which is the term for a single cigarette. Um, mm. that you would get at the bodega. You know about that, Lewis, right? Oh, yeah. You pick up a Lucy all the time. Oh, yeah. You know me, just like smoking like a Contessa right outside the store. <laughs> that I've written on it a couple times. So subscribe to Lucy. Also, subscribe to my fucking newsletter, listeners, Frank, which is at iramadison.substack.com. I don't think I've ever told people to subscribe to it. That's why I don't have that many followers. <laughs> If you like how Ira has opinions here, he does the same thing, but transcribes them. And that's what I guess a newsletter is. There's an essay a week. And then there's also on Fridays, a list of 10 cultural things that I'm recommending that week. So the last thing I want to recommend is I believe a game I've brought up before. It's called Half Truth. It is a trivia mm -hmm. game that Ken Jennings created a couple years ago. And I am always interested in new ways to ask questions. I myself right now, I'm trying to come up with just game show ideas to pitch. You know, as you know, it bothers me that I'm not like a Merv Griffin figure who has like several famous game shows out in the netherworld. But the way the questions are posed in this is 
there are six multiple choice options and three of them are correct and the players bet chips on a roulette table or something they bet on various answers it can bet different amounts and stuff and there's different jeopardies and risks for betting more or betting less uh like for instance one of the questions he had was which of these is a triple album and the options are the wall by pink floyd 69 love songs by magnetic fields all things must pass by george harrison sandinista by the clash sign of the times by prince and the blueprint 2 by jay-z so you would make various guesses and then three of those are correct and in this case it's 69 love songs all things must pass and uh sandinista sign of the times by the way my favorite double album i think of all time mm. How about that? Blueprint 2, an awful double album. It had The Gift and The Curse. <laughs> yes. And it has an awful song. Lenny Kravitz singing the chorus, Just Like Life, Guns and Roses, Friends and Foeses. Oh, Maybe no. Turn it off. Ring Around the Roses? What's happening there? <laughs> you know what? Sometimes Lenny Kravitz was just allowed to say things because he's very hot. <laughs> he is among the hotter celebrities who have ever existed. And can wield the guitar like with his arm. You just you see his arms, too. He's always wearing a sleeveless shirt. You just be like, you know what? It sounds good. Just don't listen to the lyrics. Right, right, right. And of course, his mom is Roxy Roker, which needs to be stated more often. My last item before we wrap up this gift guide is a fashion item. Ooh. And it comes off of me reading this article in The Atlantic by Amanda Mole, uh, which was called Your Sweaters Are Garbage. It's just basically about the quality of knitwear, mm. that how it's cratered, and even expensive sweaters like aren't hefty and lush anymore. Basically, just have to buy like vintage at this point. This is a good observation. I, as somebody who likes to wear a sweater, I'm thinking of actually the quality of certain ones. I'm like, oh, this is really thin. Or I wouldn't re really wear it year to year. No, you should really just be finding like sweaters in vintage stores at this point. And that's even better because if you can find sweaters that used to be expensive or were designer, but they're from, you know, the 80s or the 90s or 2000s, they'll be much cheaper than they were back then, but they'll be much better quality than if you went and bought an expensive one now. Except for there is a shaggy dog sweater at J Press. Uh, I love J Press. They did this collabo with Rowing Blazers once, but it's just like a very comfortable shaggy sweater. I mean, it's called the shaggy dog sweater. You can mm. imagine what it's like. The material feels good. It comes in multiple colors. And that is a perfect gift for any sort of fashionable man in your life. And even someone who's not very fashionable, like if you get them the right color and give it to them, like it might be sort of maybe the best sweater they've ever worn. This so. is what I like about Caitlin Collins on CNN. When she wears a sweater, she looks like she belongs at like Radcliffe College in 1972. And that is the point of wearing a sweater. <laughs> you got to look like a preppy girl in the movie Love Story. You know what? I would love to take my fashion sense to 70s paranoid thriller. Oh, sure. The parallax view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Three days of the condor. <laughs> Three days of the sweater. Yes. <laughs> All right. When we're back, we're joined by new pop icon Slater. Keep It is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Well, check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym 
Whether you're running, training, or even just weekend lounging, doing nothing, you look great in Viore. The Women's Performance Jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Grab one of the new colors before they sell out, and check out the Women's Daily Legging, which features a high-waist, drawstring tie, and upgraded no-slip fit. For guys, there's the Men's Core Short, the most comfy-lined athletic short out there. Am I wearing one right now? Who's to say? and the men's Sunday performance jogger. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. I wear this stuff all the time. I love to work out, and I need to be comfortable while I do it. There's something about the cling of the short on the thigh that is essential for me, and Viore provides it. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash keep it. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash keep it. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash keep it and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Black Stories, Black Truths. It's a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shimerda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories and Black truths. Black stories haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. And by us, I mean me and Lewis. <laughs> I'm black, you're tan. <laughs> oh, that's extremely generous of you. <laughs> I look like I belong in Portrait of a Lady, honey. It's like deep white. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique, and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Dawn Lux. Dawn Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. I think it is safe to say our guest today is a fucking icon. If not for her sexy, heart-pumping, 
Unchained music, at the very least for her naked strut down Hollywood Boulevard. She has been a club darling since her SoundCloud days, and now she's back with the provocative and just plain fun new album, Starfucker. The deluxe is out now. Welcome to Keep It, Slater. My gosh, what an intro. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you deserve it. You know I love you. Um, and oh I love God, this album. Love you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to talk about, first of all, the deluxe for Starfucker, which just came out, and it has the title track now. What prompted holding that song back for the deluxe? Because I also want to say, so many people love it. I was talking to a friend of mine about it this week. I think it's one of our favorite pop songs of the year. Definitely one of my faves of yours. It is such a good song. Thank you. I mean, what made me hold it back was that it didn't exist yet. I kind of just named the album Starfucker without having a song around that. And then with that title in mind, I was like, I really need like a title track. And I went into the studio. I actually had a different title track that I'm pretty sure leaked that it's like, a, it's like the song Starfucker, but it's like a different song. And I just wasn't feeling it. And I was like, I need, I like went back in and I made that. And I was like, all right, this feels, this feels right. Mm-hmm. Yes, it. I think it did leak, and I also want to ask you about that because <laughs> so, so but it's interesting because when we were growing up, there was you know LimeWire and everything, and mm-hmm. songs would leak, but not to the extent of the entire album leaks or the entire demos of things that you've worked on for years yeah. and maybe aren't going to be on the album. I think like a couple weeks ago all the scrap songs for Charlie's new album leaked out. A friend was texting me today about Tate McRae's album. Like, everything always leaks. And your oh stuff gosh. leaked, too. And I just wanted to know what yeah. you feel about that and how weird it feels being in the club or hearing songs of yours playing early and fans knowing them but loving them. And does it impact your sort of process finishing the album? Not really. I feel like I try to keep blinders on with like what people say on like forums and stuff. I definitely like read it all, Mm -hmm. but I don't let people's opinions on demos kind of sway my opinion. Cause like in, in my, like in my head, I'm like, I feel like I'm the artist. Like I always will like know best for my output, but um, it is funny. It's interesting to like see when people are obsessed or fixated on certain demos of mine. And I'm like, that's not even a good song. Like, why are you so obsessed with that? <laughs> and it's kind of, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's funny that in that way, but I, I don't know. Leaking leak culture is really weird. Cause on one hand, I feel really grateful that people care so much to even like hear my unreleased. There's artists who are a lot bigger that like don't deal with leaks. Cause they just don't have a fan base. That's like that rabid in that way. And so I do feel grateful for it. But at the same time, yeah, it's just, it's annoying. It's like you you get so excited about making music and then you kind of like, it like gets taken away from you in a way. But um, I have like a new protocol in place where I'm using an iPod for everything from here on out. So no, okay. nothing will leak. Nothing will leak anymore. I'm putting all my music on an iPod. Okay, I love the iPod. I was actually considering being one of those retro people and getting... Mm-hmm an old iPod from eBay and listening to music on it again. I think that there's just something about listening to music and having it not be on your phone, which is so, it it feels like you're digesting the music a bit more. There's just something about when you're listening to music and then a text can come in and it interrupts your experience that is annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I fully agree. I feel like, 
even just having the iPod, it's like, you also have to be really specific about like what you're loading onto it. So it's like, you know, I'll put like the full Britney blackout album and then like a couple other mm-hmm. things. And then it's like, that's all I have to listen to sometimes Spotify or like Apple music, whatever, because there's, you have access to everything. I don't know. Like I used to listen to music so intentionally when I was younger, cause I would have to actually upload the album onto my iPod and then mm-hmm. I would listen to it all the way through. And now it's just like, Oh, you can listen to that song from that album. And then you can listen to this song from this album. And then you can literally go, like listen to like random rain sounds because you're going to sleep. Like it's, it's so random, (laughs) but it's nice to be more intentional about like what you're listening to, I guess. Especially with the concept of a playlist, right? You used Mm -hmm. to have to actually make a playlist or a mixtape. And now you just toss something in when you're at a party, queuing up stuff to whatever you want to hear. What kind of music would you feel like you would intentionally put on the iPod besides Britney Blackout, which is the Bible, obviously. Yeah. Like what what are you listening to in just your spare time for fun? And what were you listening to when you were creating Starfucker? I feel like what I'm listening to now is different from what I listened to to make this album. For mm-hmm. this album, I was listening to a lot of like 80s, like post-punk, like dark baseline vibes, like Boy Harsher. And then I was also listening to like Confessions on the Dance Floor, Madonna. Mm -hmm. Then I was also listening to, you know, like the fame and like all these different kind of pop albums. But, you know, having like a lot of different, like I feel like a lot of 80s music and like retro shit and like just dark kind of brooding like goth songs, which is random. But like, I feel like that's what inspired like Erotic Electronic and some of my like other songs. But um. Yeah, I feel like recently I'm in like a really big, like back to like my Y2K tip. I'm listening to uh, like Nelly Furtado. I'm listening to like Lil Wayne. I'm listening to like all this stuff that was like really popular when I was younger. That's which a has good been era. Fun. I feel like that's, yeah, it's like informing the next, like when like Lollipop was on the radio is like my, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I just, that like that era of club music, all the songs were like popping bottles in the club. Like that's all anyone talked about in songs. And it's like kind of, I don't know. It's kind of iconic. I love it. That is very Slater coded too, because what yeah. I love about your music is very, it's very pop bottles aesthetic. It's very yeah. obsessed with the idea of the concept of partying and celebrity. Where did this sort of birth from you? Was it just reading the tabloids? Was it watching TRL? Was it an obsession with old Hollywood and old films? Like, where, where did this sort of form within your brain? I feel like when I was younger, I had a sis- I have a sister who's four years older than me. And she would show me stuff on MySpace and then also like against my mom's wishes, she would be like, like, Grace, come in, come in the computer room, which like that sentence alone is like crazy. <laughs> come in the computer room. And then I would go downstairs, I'd go into the computer room and then she would pull up Perez Hilton and we would like, she would like read me the articles and like, be like, oh my gosh, like, like she would, tr- she was trying to like, f- like flex on me. She was like trying to be cool and being like, oh my gosh, like Lindsay Lohan did this. And I was like, I like was like, whoa, like cool. Like this is what like the cool older girls care about. And so I just got really enamored with it all. And I would watch the Hills with her and I would, that's kind of like where my adoration for celebrity culture blossomed at a young age was just kind of like being being it fed through like my my older sister and her friends and like what they were all obsessing over and like oh my god Lauren Conrad has this headband so we have to get this headband and blah 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 like Paris Hilton just got arrested and like all this stuff that they were obsessed with it really 
it kind of like me, I, I felt like that was like the cool thing to like be into. And then, you know, I would like listen to the music they would listen to. And it all just kind of like fit with, fit with each other. Yeah. I think that there is something about that particular celebrity culture that feels a lot of it feels superfluous and you sort of, you sort of want to hate um, yourself for focusing on it. But I think it is, I think you talked about it in an, the interview interview you did with um, Tobias about how we're all obsessed with celebrity culture, but we sort of try to pretend that we're not in order to seem smarter. But yeah. this gossip is a part of how we interact in our daily lives. Definitely. I feel like people think it's unintelligent to be into pop culture, but I totally disagree. I think keeping up with celebrity and current things in pop culture is actually really smart. I feel like it is kind of the blueprint for trends and things that go on and conversations. And um, yeah, I always think, I always think that's weird when someone's very like, I don't, I don't even watch those Kardashians. It's like, girl, yeah, you do. Like, you know, or like, if you don't, it's like, you're like boring. Like, I don't know. It's, I'm interested in it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I hate that. Mm hmm. It's interesting, too, because I feel like you have this Slater persona, which is very celebrity-focused, very party-focused, but it's also really is a persona. Because when I'm talking to you, you like, just when we're out, like, you're talking about furniture. I'm like a sweet, nice girl. <laughs> yeah. You, I feel like you talk to, talk to me about, like, furniture at a party once. Yeah. I'm like, that is where your mind is actually focused on. Definitely. I have like, I have my Kathy side and I have like the Slater side of my personality, but I think that they both, they can both go hand in hand sometimes. Like I feel like the whole Slater music project has given me a lot of confidence to like be a little crazier. And I think that those, I think those one-liners and like some of the things I say in my music are like the real me, but it's like stuff I'm too afraid to like say and act like in real life. So I'm like, let me be like a nasty whore in my music. <laughs> But I also feel like there's a bit of that in your Twitter persona, too. So you do mm -hmm. get to have a little fun with it. And tell me a bit about how, I guess, the Slater persona has evolved from, you know, Trouble Paradise to where we are now, you know, from self-titled as well. You know, this is the third Slater project, but it's it feels like it's very much you've become a new beast, a new animal. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I've just grown up so much. It's been a long time since my very first song, BFF, and I feel like every year my taste has like gotten different. I learn more things. I listen to more music. I soak in more movies. This whole album, I like watched so many new movies that I had never seen before, and I was in a relationship for, two, for almost like two years that I – was really like impacted by with different music and different things. Um, and yeah, it's kind of just like an evolution. Like I feel like as an artist, like I, I hope that I'm always like getting better and changing things up and not doing the same thing. And it would have been a shame. Like when I first started to have kept do it, been doing the Y2K thing over and over and, you know, like, I don't know, like I always want to keep growing and getting different and evolving as an artist movies that you found that you were consuming that were different than things that you had watched before like, what were some of those things and what are some of the ones that have maybe stuck with you eyes wide shut was okay. like a crazy movie i had never seen that before my ex showed it to me and i was like whoa this is crazy 
Tom and Nicole, <laughs> the classic. She hated his ass. You could tell. <laughs> like she did. Oh my god! Every time I think of them, I think of the picture of her like cheering when they got divorced. Anyway, anyway um, that body double, um, mm. Brian De Palma films like Body Double, and I, what else did I watch? I loved um, Blue Velvet with date, like David Lynch, Blue Velvet, and like Mulholland Drive. All of, like the David Lynch movies. I feel like I kind of deep dove on one night, and those were really crazy to watch because they were just so like beautiful, but really like dark and scary, but not like in your face scary. Yeah, especially once you get to Lost Highway and shit. Those are just surreal. And De Palma is actually someone who I would associate with a lot of your aesthetic, too, particularly with the videos for I Love Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love Brian De Palma films, especially like Dress to Kill. There's like a bunch where I just feel like his style was so 80s, but kind of like that tacky, corny side of the 80s, like very postmodern furniture. And kind of like that modern, it was like modern yuppies of America were like really into that furniture decor style. Like when I talked to my mom, she's like, I hated that kind of furniture. I hated the the 80s deco stuff. And I think that's so funny. But yeah, I feel like there's like, I love the like kind of tacky Scarface vibes in a lot of those movies, a lot of his movies and like all of like the, the wardrobe and everything. It's just, you know, really over the top. And I feel like a lot of that was the inspiration for your tour, which I saw when it came to New York. And the entire set is very much that glossy 80s, yuppie VCR vibe. Yeah, definitely. I was super, super specific about everything with it. I like, I wish that I could have done like more crazier furniture design, but then there wouldn't have been room to like move on stage. But um yeah, it was like I I went myself and like picked out that furniture. I was like really particular about the chairs because like people don't get like the style. You can tell people like oh 80s and like they're not gonna. So like I really like I took my time and like the plush carpet. I was obsessed. I like missed that tour just because it was so it was fun to like roll around and like sit in those chairs every night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me a bit about um, crafting that tour i I really interested in so many elements of it particularly particularly you singing diamonds are forever on the shirley bassey hit because i know that you have said in interviews too would you get sort of stuck with the hyper pop label you really want to remind people that you are a pop vocalist uh and you really like you know the music you're a singer and on that tour it was like okay bitch i'm singing yeah, definitely. I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like the whole process, like I, I wanted it the whole album to feel like it came to life on stage. And I feel like we definitely nailed it with like the live versions of the songs. It also everything came together really at the last minute, which like I hate. I'm very crazy and like if I had it my way, we would plan things like six months to a year in advance. But um yeah, everything kind of came together. Like I was like planning and thinking of everything I wanted to do. And I had all of that in my head and all my references. And uh, I, yeah, I wanted to do the Diamonds Are Forever cover. I thought it would be a really cool thing into Belladonna because that last line where she's like, men are mere, mere mortals who are not worth going to your grave for is like the line. And I was like, that's so like crazy. Um, it reminds me of like Miss Belladonna, but it all just like, I wanted the whole show to like feel like, theater to feel like there's like a storyline behind it you know it's kind of like you're it's kind of like you're like a voyeur and you're like looking into some lady's like 
80s deco apartment and you're like watching her like have like a mental breakdown is kind of the vibe, you know, like during the like, I'm a star. Like I just wanted to use all those sound bites and make it really theatery, theatrical. Yeah, I mean, you definitely accomplished that. And I love the, no, I really did love the tour. I thought it was great. And it's, uh, I think I've seen you so many times perform now, but that was, you were really just sort of the dancing in it too. And just your movement on stage. It's like, you sort of really have tapped into this sort of um, new, like confidence with your persona and your music. And so I really enjoyed watching it. And thank you. Yeah, and translating this album. I mean, what was you, you talked about creating Starfucker? You needed, you know, the title track that was coming after you had already made the album. But James Dean, and where did these other songs come from? James Dean, I feel like I made a couple months after the album was sent into the distribution system. Mm-hmm. Um I like I chose the three songs for the deluxe that I picked too because like every like speaking back on leak stuff almost every single session that I did for this album was leaked like every demo even demos where it's just like gibberish on a beat like people <laughs> found everything and I was like okay so these songs are all newer people don't have these yet and it made me want to kind of gravitate towards choosing those ones but I think it it worked out well cuz those are my favorites anyway but um yeah, like I feel like they they all kind of like tap into the different vibes of the album. Like I feel like Starfucker is more of like the A side of songs and James Dean is more like the erotic electronic section of stuff and it all kind of worked out. When you are thinking about those different sides, you know, like you have the pop vocal element of it and then you have the erotic electronic side. Is there something that you maybe enjoy more than the other is there something that you were thinking that uh if you had to really pick a side you would be drawn towards more oh that's so hard i'm i'm like an annoying like singer girl so like i love i love tough notes i love like really high hard to sing songs like the celine dion like moments that Mm. i get to do but there's nothing more electric than like daddy is fuck live when i'm like like freaking out, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I feel like if I had to choose one, if I had to choose one, maybe like the party music mm-hmm. vibe more, but I do love to sing. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Like I could just like sing every day. So like I love the like the more pop ones like also do have a special place in my heart. I mean Girl Like Me, very very underrated song on your album. Thank the, you. The girl, the girl I should agree. be talking about it more. I feel like that one might be like a sleeper hit, hopefully. But yeah, I thought people would freak out more about that. I had a lot of friends who were like, this is going to be the one that everyone loves. But it's, I don't think that, I think it's like the least like streamed on the album. Not that I'm like keeping track, but it is. (laughs) Well, let's run up those streams uh, for that song. (laughs) I want to ask lastly, then you have gone in these different directions for each project. You know, was there a direction that maybe you were planning for this album at first that you decided to shift away from that you would love to do in a future project? Or was this always the plan, but you now have an idea of maybe where Slater is going to go next? Like just sonically what you're thinking about. Yeah, I feel I actually this album was originally going to be called Valentine because I had this demo called Valentine that was going to be like the song of the album. 
Um, and I was going to do more of like a burlesque visual theme. Like I was really into like all these like old Hollywood burlesque stars. And I think that that definitely still creeped into Starfucker as it is now. Like the burlesque inspiration. I love burlesque dancers. I love like the rhinestone costumes and the ostrich feathers and all of that. But I think in the future, I'm like where my head's at right now. I'm really, I've been listening to my mixtape like a lot, like listening to that nonstop, listening to a lot of Aisha Radhika, my friend and my friend, that kid, Spencer, and all the music from like my early days when I first started and Britney and just all these different things. And um, yeah, like I kind of, I feel like I can feel myself sonically shifting into like Miami party music, like mixtape GTA vibes. Like that's kind of where my, where my brain is going, but it's too soon to tell. Like, I, I don't want to give away too much stuff of what I'm thinking. Cause that can always change. I'm like, I'm in a really weird pocket where like, I'm, I just started like the first song for my thing yesterday. So mm-hmm. I'm like, we're like, we're at the baby steps, but I'm excited. I love that. I mean, let's get yeah. you on a GTA soundtrack. Right. That's what I, I would, do you see the new trailer? It looks crazy. I did. I'm not even I like, <laughs> I'm not even like a video game girl, but I was like blown away. I was like, this looks realer than like real people. Yeah, I I barely have played GTA, but I remember obviously growing up seeing every trailer and it has grown so far from just seeing people who really look like arcade cartoons running around Miami shooting up people to now it looks it's full AI. I know it's crazy. It's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've seen like the deep fake technology, but like I have. that like can make people move. Ah, like I'm I scared. Have. No, I mean, there, the weirdest one I saw was the Kendall Jenner one. Have you seen that? No. Kendall Jenner has a, a AI version of herself that is selling some stuff. I saw it on Instagram. It's very creepy, which is going to make her a shit ton of money, but it's not oh. going to make everybody else a bunch of money. She, oh. she created a fake version of herself, an AI version of herself to sell things. She sold her likeness to a company, so... Oh my god. That's really scary. This is dystopian. We're we're in our dystopian era. That's like the that's the inspiration for my next project. Dystopian <laughs> bullshit. Yeah, I mean you're keeping up with the Kardashians and now you have to keep up with the AI Kardashians. So Oh my god. Too many. I need to make an AI Slater. I, I would like an AI Slater. That'd be fine. I don't think any I don't think anyone wants that. I do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being here. It was lovely to talk thank to you. you. Lovely to talk to you too. Yeah. And I love this album. I truly, Starfucker, a great fucking song. So thank you so much. Thank you. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. It was also pretty boring, by the way. To The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and made to compete in a beauty pageant. Amazing to watch, by the way. On each episode of Wondry's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition for women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then they were ranked by a panel of judges. And that's just after... 
Truman Capote was done with them. Unsurprisingly, it led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, so last week we were joined by our icon, our father, Todd Haynes, uh, to talk about his new film, May, December. And now that it is out on Netflix, the masses have seen it. And the masses have a lot to say. Yeah. And a lot of what they have to say is stupid. (laughs) But I will say, for a movie (laughs) that is very weird, I mean, there's not much that's conventional about this movie in any way. And by the way, it does not even remind me of his usual influences. Like, it doesn't remind me of Sir, it doesn't remind me of like Elmadovar, what, what, the names we usually associate with Todd Haynes. It is mm-hmm. its own thing. And um, to accept it on those terms, as I believe Twitter has, like it's largely, but largely been a rhapsodic reaction for a movie that, yes. is, that trades in a lot of like grisly, weird, amorphous, morally ambiguous territory. One of the things I will actually say about it is it was released theatrically first, obviously, so it can be an awards contender because you need that release window in theaters. And now it's on Netflix. The one thing I did love this past weekend was at least seeing, even if there were wild opinions about the film, the fact that people were watching it and diving into it. And that's sort of what you wanted from a movie from a director like Todd Haynes being on Netflix in the first place when they were first buying movies. It reminds me of sort of when Roma came out or something, but I feel like more people were talking about this than talking about Roma, right? I think making a movie that feels commercial, but ultimately isn't, sort mm-hmm. of like tricks you into being, because it has Natalie Portman in it, it has Julianne Moore, it has Charles Melton from Riverdale. Yeah. So of course, you know, Netflix viewers are going to glom onto it. And then what they get is a surprise. Yes, twisted. Um, Also, I like that it's a movie, even if you just read a synopsis about it, you think, oh, okay, it's based off this Mary Kay Letourneau, Vili Falau tabloid bonanza from the 90s, this really, you know, I'll say gross relationship. Uh, And you're like, so it's just about that. But it's really not about that relationship. It's about what we do when we make a movie or art about these things. And like, what we're actually mining the experience for, I think, ultimately. And I will say I, I, it's gotten one, some of his best reviews ever. I think it has an 85 on Metacritic. Carol, I believe, when it came out, was the highest rated movie of that year. It had like a 95 on Metacritic. But this is up in that territory, basically. I love this film. 
I think more so than you. I like it, and I have questions, though. Yes. Okay. What are your questions? My thing is, is the, is the point of view of the audience a little too tee-hee about all the characters? I just feel like, like when Natalie reveals herself to be crazy, and then Julianne reveals herself to be crazy, and then the Charles Melton character is just emotionally stunted, do we get anything else from this situation other than she's crazy, she's crazy, he's a, a, a man-child? I just don't know that there's much we get from them as characters that is that fascinating ultimately. I feel like you're kind of just supposed to laugh at everybody. I don't feel like you're supposed to laugh at people. I mean, I was broken by Charles Melton's uh, With the exception of him. I'll say that. And also, I like how the sneak attack of how the movie kind of becomes about him, which you don't mm. expect. I would say when it's about the sensationalism of a tabloid story, you know, or true crime, etc. I think that there's always this idea that you are digging digging deeper, finding out what's really underneath the surface, and I think that what the movie does, it tells you that there's nothing beneath the surface. It's exactly what you think. It's exactly what you are pretending it's not. Got Everyone it. is like, "We well, you have to understand like what's going on behind this woman like why would she sleep with this seventh grader uh and this actress you know like she really is digging into the story uh she really wants to portray it um in an honest way and um ultimately they're both liars yes well also it's what's very interesting is so natalie plays an actress who is going to be playing this mary kayla turnope figure played by julianne moore so she goes to study her in person Mm -hmm. um, to research the role. And Spoiler alert, by the way. Some of you girls were a little mad that we spoiled things about Saltburn in a review of Saltburn, where we were talking about we just watched the film. Mm -hmm. Right, Y'all ain't new to this podcast. Come on, we talk about the movies because we saw them. You know what I mean? We get into them. Anyway, um, and I think what's interesting is, so the Natalie Portman character, we, we kind of assume she's a really good actress and a you know an accomplished person who's making <laughs> decisions um, in good faith. And as the movie goes along, you start to realize, oh, she's this like TV actress on a ridiculous TV show where they which and you 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 sort of get an insight that it's something to do with animals. And then eventually, somebody comes up to her and says, "Oh, I love you on Nora's Ark," which is the most hilariously <laughs> shitty title of all time. I love the slow roll of that. That is really good. But you realize she's basically this hack who's using these hack methods to figure out anything about this family so she can put that on the screen. Particularly at school when she's with um, Julia's daughter's class talking about acting and they're asking her about sex scenes in acting and shooting them. And she's, she's basically like orgasming while she's talking about it. And she's like so full of herself. Right, right. You start to realize that she's deeply, deeply egotistical. Um, but, and also they show a clip from a TV movie that was previously made about this couple. And you assume that, oh, what she's working on is going to be a lot better than that TV movie. And then when they, at the end, when you discover what she's actually making, it is just like, it's tar level. It it is exactly tar. The ending of tar. (laughs) I've only ever experienced an ending of this movie, like the ending of tar, which is an unforgettable experience and just puts you in this, you already thought you were in a bizarre world. And now you're like utterly depressed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i really enjoy it i think it is i, I it need to watch it a few more times but also just let it sit and simmer as far as me ranking todd haynes films obviously i fucking love carol and i love far from heaven too but i would say that far from heaven is very um it's very didactic as yes a film. right 
it's not that deep either. Yeah, he's doing Cirque. Uh, and he's playing with Cirque's conventions, but it's a lot of Cirque shots, and it's a lot of um, really sort of replicating um, all that heaven allows. So it's very technical, and it feel felt it feels very an homage. Yeah, it's an homage. But yeah, I, it was the first time I watched it was at um, NYU, uh, and so it, it feels very like, in a film class. So it feels very much film class. We are honoring Cirque and presenting this film in this way. I don't dislike films like that. I think that um, Gus Van Sant's Psycho is incredibly interesting as a film. I wish that he had gone to the Todd Haynes level of switching up Psycho, but doing a direct homage. The the shot-by-shot remake of it is interesting as an exercise, but ultimately it is a mess. Yeah, and to watch uh, is, is pretty pedantic, too, I'd have to, yeah. I have to say. Also, the casting in that movie is just so strange. Yeah. Vince Vaughn is just all wrong. But anyway. But I like the concept of doing movies like that. Mm-hmm. I get. I have to say about this movie, I have watched it three times, which is interesting for a movie that I personally would say is a three-star movie and not a four-star movie the way like the internet is saying. But I will say the, re- the reason I keep returning to it, no movie feels like this. So mm-hmm. I, I am really cherishing that experience because I feel like a lot of the time, not we, we sort of have movies down to a science, and it rarely feels like you get something that feels brand new. And this is brand new. And by the way, a return to form for Julianne Moore, who we just don't get in these like kooky roles anymore. In fact, she takes on a lisp in this movie. I don't know who made this choice, but some of the line readings with the lisp are so funny, it's painful. But Mary Kay had a bit of a lisp. R- right, right. Which, interesting choice. Uh, but anyway, she says the words still smoky at some point. And I, <laughs> I, when I'm walking by myself at the grocery store, we'll just say that to myself and like laugh <laughs> like a crazy person. You looking in the bacon section. <laughs> yes. Uh, looking for, or looking for ham for your, um, Christmas dinner. You're like, I don't want the smoked ham. <laughs> still smoky. I, want the, I want the honey ham. <laughs> <laughs> I would also say that. It's great that it feels different and kooky because Todd Haynes has is such a great director, but has done so much homage and stuff that is inspired by other works that it feels like he's finally into this realm where he is um, creating his own genre to the point where years later, like there will be directors who are emulating like what he's doing in May, December. That would be nice, yes. No, also, it's just like, he's one of these people that's never won an Academy Award. He's been nominated for um, a, a couple times in the past. He didn't, uh, and so maybe there's like more, I, I feel like the Academy Award story here will be the screenplay, which is the first one by Sammy Birch. Um, that will probably be nominated for something. I adore her work, and she's the, I'm friends with her sister, Molly Birch, who is a great singer. Uh, and so if you haven't listened to Molly Birch's new album, um you should. Um, it's really good. I wrote the um, press packet for it. And both of them are childhood friends with Kate Berlant, which is, which is very weird. So it's like all three of them have this sort of like origin story together. But um, Sammy Birch's script is hilarious. Everyone's referencing that line where Julianne Moore says, uh, I don't think we have enough hot dogs. And then the next scene, it says, you see the grill. There are so, so many hot dogs. That's a funny fucking line. Yeah. Uh, That's a funny thing that's just in the script that you normally wouldn't even see in the movie. Uh, So I think the script is really good. And I want to lastly point out 
Lewis Peitzman had this interesting tweet about it uh, where he said that the um, referencing like the, you know, like the who's the boss um, scene in the movie where she's talking about who was really in control in their relationship when he was younger. They get into this fight where Julianne Moore is saying to her now adult husband lover, um, who's the boss, as in, like, uh, is condescendingly talking to him, basically. Yeah. Uh, who was in really in control, you know, like, you were in control of me, you know. It's very creepy. She talks about how he had had experience with women before, implying that this child having childhood relationships with two other girls was the same thing as being with two women. Mm-hmm. But um, that mirrors an actual interview that Mary Kay had done with After, Billy Falau on camera. Yeah. They took the yeah. dialogue directly from it. So yes. and I, th- I think what's interesting about that is uh, normally I, I think taking real life examples of things is like, it's like too on the nose, like it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that argument makes way more sense as a private tete-a-tete mm-hmm. than it does as an on-camera interview. They really use the material realistically. It's interesting. Yeah. And that is what Lewis had tweeted, mostly that, Using real life things to influence the script, but putting it into the script in a more interesting way is much better than when we watch The Crown or something and you see an exact scene that you already saw televised recreated with someone just impersonating um, what they've seen on camera already. Actually, I like this series, so I don't mean to dog on it too much, but like in Feud, when they do the presentation of the best actress winner and they use the exact Mm -hmm. footage and like the exact steps Joan Crawford took to the stage to deliver the speech before she walks off and like tries Mm -hmm. to humiliate Betty Davis. It's like, it's interesting that you got such an, uh, 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 sorry. It's interesting that you got such an, a literal recreation, but all you got is a literal recreation, you know? Mm -hmm. Lastly, I would say the other big movie that both of us saw was the iron claw, which we can't really talk about yet. Um, when it's released, we'll give a full review of it. But I do want to say that um, the cast, Zac Efron's amazing in this movie. And I hate that the conversation is just focused on his face and his body and how he transformed himself for this movie because he is really lived in in this role. And he's this the best he's ever been. I mean, on, on he screen. is born for this role. It's one of those things where I can't picture anybody else doing it. Um, there's even just something like, there's a lot of anguish in this character and he conveys that so casually. It's not somebody who needs a big scene to convey a lot of inner tor- turmoil. He's constantly wearing it, constantly exhibiting it. And that palpable quality really makes this a movie people should see. I mean, we haven't seen him do anything prestigious in years. So, And also, um, my baby daddy is in this film, uh, Harris Dickinson. Who Very I'm good. obsessed with. Yeah. Uh, he's so White good in this. Uh, Harris is right up there with um, Zach is my fave in this film. I think that Harris Dickinson is such an interesting actor. He's in Beach Rats, which I don't love. But Triangle of Sadness is an amazing movie, and he's so good in it. And he's also really good in um, that new hulu series uh well it's on hulu it's an fx series from brit marling it's a a murder at the end of the world with emma corin speaking of the crown like emma they are amazing in this too uh so if you are a harris dickinson fan um you should maybe watch a murder at the end of the world also it's just a really good psychological thriller 
Uh, and so more people should be talking about it. One last thing about Iron Claw. I don't believe that Maura Tierney has ever been bone shilling before. But man, you get a portrait of a, a person in peril okay. in a new way in this one. Woof. I am not looking at her the same way again. She was giving precious. Yeah. <laughs> Except like if the Monique character were utterly repressed in every single way. Like that's a whole different mm. world of hurt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was very evil and a, like a wicked sort of chilling character from her. Um, I want to lastly say about this movie though, which is it it was it's 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 on my mind of it whether this is like one of my favorite films of the year or whether I'm angry at it because as a biopic honoring these brothers, um the Von Erich brothers, they cut a fucking brother out of the movie. To be fair, there's a whole bunch of them. You know what I'm saying? Like how many brothers can you honestly get to? <laughs> <laughs> they cut one brother for time. I get it, but it is kind of weird. I mean, you're like, fuck his drag. <laughs> That's what they said. That's what uh, <laughs> the producer said, reading the Wikipedia of their family. Obviously, Zach Efron is the only surviving Von Eric brother, and he has a whole big family now. Um, so they've sort of broken the Von Eric curse, um, so to speak. But can you just imagine the other Von Erich brothers in the afterlife um, looking at this movie and they're all talking to the one brother who was cut out like couldn't even make the biopic bitch what is this New Yorker cartoon you have of uh, image of them <laughs> watching this movie together it's the, they're the family circus yeah <laughs> <laughs> Family Circus have a bunch of dead angels watching them all the time? Not often, but they did have a giant picture, so you had to read the fair Family Circus. That was, I think, the, the clever real estate of that comic. You couldn't avoid looking at it. I feel like part of the Family Circus took place in the afterlife. <laughs> I think I think there were dead children watching them sometimes. You sound like my friend Rachel claiming that Dancing on My Own is about a ghost. Why can't you see me? <laughs> I'm in the corner. Anyway. <laughs> I'm going to look this up, and okay. we're going to talk about this next week, okay? We're going to deep dive into the family circus, bitch. All right, all right. And it, it will be the only dive, let alone the deepest one. <laughs> all right, we're back. Keep it. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis. We're ready for your Christmas take now. Okay, You've been good. Teasing it. Shall I deck the halls? Let's begin. Uh, as you know, Brenda <laughs> Lee is finally number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with "Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree," which she recorded when she was 13 years old. Um, she is 78 now. I mean, I, it, it's sort of like. Let me say this about Brenda Lee: extremely accomplished musician who had tons of hit singles. Like "I'm Sorry" is a number one hit, multiple number ones, tons of hit singles throughout the 60s, and. Now she's basically only remembered for this, even though she's in like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's like if, you know, Michael Jackson were only known for like the first single he recorded with the Jackson 5 or something. It's a very unusual situation. But anyway, my keep it is to... She's Michael Jackson? I did not say she was Michael Jackson. Same complexion, but... Okay, right. Very good. I just want to say keep it to the fact that we keep putting the same Christmas songs back on the chart every year. I'm psyched for Burl Ives. I'm happy to see a Holly Jolly Christmas. I'm, of course, psyched for Mariah, you know, um, Last Christmas by Wham. But there are just so many other Christmas hits that deserve inclusion. I'll breeze very quickly past The Carpenters. I never see Merry Christmas Darling on this list, which is one of my favorite Christmas songs. I do want to say, though, there is a lyric I don't like, which is in the second verse, it says, Holidays are joyful. There's always something new. 
girl, you know that's not true. The Christmas is the same every year. I, any, other, any other word rhymes with you. They could have said something is true, whatever. So I wish they did like a punch up on that. But otherwise, I would love a renaissance for, like, you know what never gets on the, the charts every year? The waitress's uh, Christmas wrapping. Why is that not on the charts every year? That's like the new Christmas classic. People should be, and also I seem to hear it all the time. If I'm at Starbucks, if I'm at Target, whatever, it's, a, it's everywhere. So I don't know why this isn't on the same level as Burl Ives. In Pleasantville? Is, it is that where you hear it all the time? No, I'm talking about that's where you live, bitch. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Listening sure. to your old Christmas timey hits. Right, right, right. I do think there should be something whiskey soaked about a Christmas classic, though. I want to hear the turmoil in the family. You know what I mean? Uh, another completely um, underrated Christmas song that no one knows is What Do Bad Girls Get uh, by Joan Osborne, which is basically a play on Santa Baby. Uh, uh, basically, uh, I know what nice girls get. What do bad girls get? Look that up. She's also one of the most underrated vocalists ever. Do you have any underrated Christmas songs that don't come back hard enough every year? Uh, well, I mean, speaking of last Christmas, there is um, the Ashley Tisdale version, which never <laughs> gets any respect. Okay. I, it might not get any from me right here, so beware. <laughs> but I also have, I think that one, Ariana Grande's Christmas and Chill album is really good. And I don't know why that doesn't get any more play on the charts because it is Ariana Grande. Yeah. You know? Santa Tell Me does hit the charts every so often, but you're right. Like, it mm -hmm. doesn't feel like we got much more from that era of hers. Um, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays by NSYNC, obviously. Mm. And Eight Days of Christmas by Destiny's Child deserves more play. Would you say that's better or worse than their song for International Children's Day? Stand Up for the Children or whatever it's called. No, Lewis. <laughs> it's their first song on their greatest hits. It makes me, it makes me crazy thinking of that. Doesn't it feel like Christmas? Yeah. Oh, great song. We'll get into Renaissance next week, by the way. I was supposed to see it last night, and I didn't get to because I was tired. But I will. I'm sure people will still be talking about it. Uh, and there's a lot to get into. That's true. <laughs> the, <laughs> the social media is burning up. That's right. That's right. Ira, what is your keep it this week? My keep it this week goes to Chris Wallace of CNN. Yes, son of Mike Wallace. So Adam Driver recently appeared on Chris Wallace's series, Who's Talking to Chris Wallace? Uh, and um, he was promoting Ferrari, which I cannot fucking wait to see because uh, I feel like um, that's one of the movies. Like, it just had its premiere and so that's one of the movies that we haven't really heard much about the performances in it right. from Adam and Penelope Cruz, my other queen. Um, I'm really excited to hear about what's going on um, movie-wise with that. But Adam Driver did an interview with Chris Wallace where Chris Wallace was so nasty to him about his appearance. No way. What? Now, listen. Adam Driver has an interesting face. But I would also say that Adam Driver has hordes of fans online who are constantly saying they're sexually attracted to him. I think Adam Driver looks great. I'm attracted to him. Moving on. Uh, he doesn't have a plastic, you know, sort of CW face, but he, he looks like one of, and like an actor from the 70s. Like, yeah. he looks like a real human being. The kind of people who used to be leading men in, like, a Scorsese film back sure. then. Like an Elliot Gould or something. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, who was good enough for Barbara. 
Right. I know. By the way, when you say bring up Chris Wallace, I immediately go to Mike Wallace, who was a fucking dick to her too. Read it in the book. Right. Moving on. Chris Wallace basically asks Adam Driver what he thinks about people's opinions of his face. And Adam Driver references that some people have called him horse-faced, et cetera, in the past. He tries not to absorb these insults and comparisons and just focus on the work. And then Chris Wallace goes in further asking if he thinks that he would have a more successful career if he looked like Robert Redford. Which is the last celebrity he can think of. Okay, great. Which is then followed by putting Robert Redford's face on the screen in a split screen of Robert and Adam's face. That is so unusual and It's so cruel. nasty. I can't think of a, a, another scenario like that in history. What if you looked like this guy? Wouldn't life be better for everybody? I mean, a lot of people did point out that women used to be asked this shit all the time especially like a Barbara or something, oh, ask mm -hmm. questions about their appearance. Shady. But, no, oh, no, no. I'm not saying that women aren't asked horrible oh, yeah, questions, of course. shady questions, whatever. I, I can't think of another instance of, here is literally who we would prefer you look like, putting the <laughs> picture up next to them. Yeah. <laughs> Giving very much the view. Yes. The split screen. Like Rosie and Elizabeth Hasselbeck. It's, the split screen is really what took me out of it. And if you watch the interview, Adam is just so uncomfortable. In it, and the way Chris keeps digging in, it's it feels like I'm watching a British morning show. Actually, with how crazy they are. Mm -hmm. Wow! I, I keep thinking about um, loose women. This segment where um, I think Rod Stewart's ex-wife used to be one of the um, hosts of Loose Women, and Sarah Harding was on that show. Sarah Harding of Girls Aloud. Uh, which who, who she sadly passed away recently. But Girls Aloud is having a reunion tour in the UK next year that I'm going to and I'm very excited for. But she was asking Sarah Harding about her career and about how she didn't have much solo success and whether or not the lack of solo success and lack of a successful relationship and had anything to do with the lack of relationship that she had with her father and really just keeps digging into Sarah's personal life. And that interview reminded me of that. It wasn't digging to really get the truth. It was more, how do I keep piling on this person for television? I didn't know this was Chris Wallace's beat, by the way. I'm not coming to him for like hard-hitting E-red carpet interviews or whatever. What a strange turn. Who's talking to Chris Wallace? Probably nobody after I, this. I fucking guess, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to Adam Driver in that movie, by the way, even though I am already uh, up to my limit with movies with the word Ferrari in them. I have to tell you, the last <laughs> one is fresh on my mind. Um, I'm excited to see that so we can talk about those performances. And other performances that I'm very much excited to talk about in the future, I saw Color Purple last night. We, I know you're talking and about Miss Danielle Brooks. I'm talking about Danielle Brooks, okay? Fantasia is great in the movie, uh, and she's going to get a lot of accolades, obviously. But Danielle Brooks, give her that Best Supporting Actress Oscar right now. Yeah, oh I my God. I have not seen anybody tapped in the way that she was in this film. 
it's her movie. Yeah. And she is such an amazing fucking actress. I, I want to see her in more things. By the way, well, she's also the host of that Netflix show where they make over a show in a day. What's it called? Like 24 hours or something. I don't know. But even on that, her personality pops off. Like she has that on tap and she gets to really harness that and use that in this movie um, in, in comedic ways. And then later uh, it, when she's triumphing from despair. Of course. I mean, she went to Juilliard. So do you think I should go to Juilliard? Um, to do what exactly? Writing. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, like, they need people to, like, you know, write the menu at the cafe there, you know? You know what? I'm talking about furthering my education. Oh, and you okay. make jokes. I would love if you started it, yeah. <laughs> and you make jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I see the you Juilliard like, acting is coming out now, yes. You think you think I'm a clown? You think I'm funny? <laughs> ah, Pesci. Yes, I'm familiar. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> all right <laughs> this has been our episode <laughs> thank you to slater uh, for chatting with me and uh we will see you next week where we will finally get into renaissance yes. and also possibly pink friday if it's actually released right and of course tate mccray's album comes out friday too and uh my theater segment with Juan Ramirez is next week too. So Okay, there's just the whole show. How about fucking that? All right, great. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And If you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our producer is Chris Lord, and our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, Louis Vertel, and Kendra James. Our digital team is Megan Patzel, Claudia Shang, and Rachel Gajewski. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to Matt DeGroot, David Tolles, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support every week. seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.